Chapter Four, Part Two of the Planet Strappers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Planet Strappers by Raymond Z. Gallon. Chapter Four, Part Two. Opportunity came near sundown after a shift. Rodan, Dutch, and he had come into the supply and shop dome through its airlock. Lester and Helen, these two introverts, had somehow discovered each other and were getting along well together, were visible through the transparent wall, lingering at the diggings. Nelson saw Rodan and Dutch unlatch the collars of their helmets, preparatory for removing them, as they usually did, if they stayed here a while, to pack new artifacts or stow tools. Nelson made as if to unlatch his collar, too. But if he did it, the gasket would be unsealed, and his helmet would no longer be airtight. Now, he told himself, or would it be better to wait fourteen more Earth days till another lunar dawn? Hell no. That would be chickenish procrastination. Rodan and Dutch were a good ten feet away from him. He was out of their reach. With the harmless-looking trowel he held like a dagger, he struck with all his might at the stellene outer wall of the dome, and then made a ripping motion. Like a monster gasping for breath, the imprisoned air sighed out. Taking advantage of the moment when Rodin's and Dutch's hands moved in life-saving instinct to reseal their collars, Frank Nelson leaped, and then kicked twice as hard as he could in rapid succession, at Dutch's stomach first, then Rodin's. They were down, safe from death, since they had managed to relatch their collars. But with a cold fury that had learned to take no chances with defeat, Nelson proceeded to kick them again, first one and then the other, meaning to make them insensible. He got Dutch's pistol. He was a shade slow with Rodin. You won't get anything that is mine, he heard Rodin grunt. Frank managed to deflect the automatic's muzzle from himself, but Rodin moved it downward purposefully, lined it up on a box marked dynamite, and fired. Nelson must have thrown himself prone at the last instant, before the ticklish explosive blew. He saw the flash and felt the dazing thud, though most of the blast passed over him. Results far outstripped the most furious intention of his plan, and became not freedom, but a threat of slow dying, an ordeal, as the sagging dome was torn from above him, and supplies, air-restorer equipment, water, and oxygen flasks, the vitals and the batteries of the solar electric plant, all for the most part hopelessly shattered, were hurled far and wide, along with the relics from Mars. The adjacent garden and quarters domes were also shredded and swept away. Dazed, Nelson still got Rodin's automatic, picked himself up, saw that Dutch and Rodin, in armor, too, had apparently suffered from the explosion no worse than he had. He glanced at the hole in the lava rock, still smoking in the high vacuum. Most of the force of the blast had gone upward. He looked at Helen's toppled tomatoes and petunias, yes, petunias, where the garden dome had been. Oddly, they didn't wilt at once, though the little water in the hydroponic troughs was boiling away furiously, making frosty rainbows in the slanting light of the sun. Fragments of a solar lamp, to keep the plants growing at night, lay in the shambles. 
Rodan and Dutch were pretty well knocked out from Frank Nelson's footwork. Now Dave Lester and Helen Rodan came running. Lester's face was all stunned surprise. Helen was yelling. I saw you do it, you murderer. When she kneeled beside her father, Frank got her gun too. He felt an awful regret for a plan whose results far surpassed his intentions, but there was no good in showing it now. Someone had to be in command in a situation which already looked black. "'Frank, I didn't suppose,' Lester stammered. "'Now, what are we going to do?' "'All that we can do. Try to get out of here,' Frank snapped back at him. With some shreds of Staline, he tied Dutch's arms behind his back and lashed his feet together. Then he pulled Helen away from Rodan. "'Hold her, Les,' he ordered. Maybe I overplayed my hand, but just the same, I still think I'm the best to say what's to be done and maybe get us out of a jam. And I can't have Helen or Rodan or anybody else doing any more cockeyed things to screw matters up even worse than they are. Nelson trussed Rodan up, too, then searched Rodan's thigh pouch and found a bunch of keys. You come along with me, Lesson Helen, he said. First, we'll find out what we've got left to work with. He investigated the rocket. That the blast had toppled it over wasn't the worst. When he unlocked its servicing doors, he found that Rodin had removed a vital part from the nuclear exciters of the motors. His and Lester's blast-off drums were still in the freight compartment, but the ionics and air restorers had been similarly rendered unworkable. Their oxygen and water flasks were gone. Only their bubs were intact, but there was nothing with which to inflate them. When Frank examined the sun-powered tractor, he found that tiny platinum plates had been taken from the thermocouple units. It was clear that, with paranoid thoroughness, Rodin had concentrated all capacity to move from the camp's vicinity in himself. He had probably locked up the missing items in the supply dome, and now the exploding dynamite had ruined them. Exploring the plane, Nelson even found quite a few of the absent parts, all useless. Only one oxygen flask and one water flask remained intact. Here was a diabolical backfiring of schemes all around. Returning to Rodin and Dutch, he examined their archers through their servicing ports. Rodin's was as the manufacturer intended it, but Dutch's was Jimmy the same as his and Lester's. Nelson swung Helen around to face him and unlatched the port at her archer's shoulder. "'He put even you on a short string, kid,' he pronounced bitterly, after a moment. "'Well, at least we can give you his nuclear battery for a while and let him have his chemical cell back.' Helen seemed about to attack him, but then her look wavered. Confusion and pain came into her face. Nelson was aware that he was doing almost all of the talking, but maybe this had to be. "'So we've got a long walk,' he said, "'towards the Toby settlement, in archers of mostly much reduced range. Whose fault this situation is can't change anything a bit. This is a life-or-death proposition, with lasting time the most important factor. So let's get started. Has anybody got any suggestions to increase our chances?' Both Rodan and Dutch had come to. Rodan said nothing. His look was pure poison. Dutch sneered. Smart damn kid you are, huh, Nelson? You think. 
Wait till you and your mumbling crackpot pal get out there. I'll watch both of you go bust, squirt. Lester seemed not to hear these remarks. All that gypsum, Frank, he said, the water and oxygen mineral. But this is for real. There's no gimmick, no energy source to release it and save us. Frank Nelson untied Rodin's and Dutch's feet, and at pistol point ordered them to move out ahead. From the charts he knew the bearing, straight toward the constellation Cassiopeia, at this hour across an arm of Mare Nova, then along a pass that cut through the mountains, eight hundred hopeless miles. Well, how did he know, really? How much could a human body take? How fast could they go? How long would the chemical batteries actually last? What breaks might appear? They loped along, even Rodin hurrying. They made a hundred miles in the hours before darkness. With just Helen's shoulder lamp showing the way, they continued onward through the mountains. Was there truly much to tell in that slow, losing struggle? Nelson attached the oxygen flask to his air system for a while, relieving the drain on his battery. Then he gave the flask to Lester. Later, he began to move the nuclear battery around to all the archers to conserve all of the other batteries a little. Soon, they filled the drinking water tanks of their armor so that they could discard the flask, whose slight weight seemed to have tripled. After twenty hours, the power of the chemical batteries began to wane. David Lester, hovering close to Helen, muttered to himself or to her. Rodin, still marching quite strongly, retreated into an unreality of his own. "'Have another scotch on the rocks, Ralph,' he said genially. "'I knew I'd make it. Nobel Prize. Oh, you have no idea what I went through. Most of my staff dead. But it's over now, Ralph. Another good stomach-warming scotch.' "'Damn loony squirts cracking up!' Dutch screamed suddenly. He began to run, promptly falling into a volcanic crack, the bottom of which couldn't even be found with the light. Fortunately, he wasn't wearing the nuclear battery just then. Somehow Lester remained cool. It was as if, with everyone else scared, too, and nobody to show superior courage, he had found himself. The batteries waned further. The cold of the inky lunar night, much worse than that of interplanetary space, where there is practically always sunshine, began to bite through the insulation of the archers, and power couldn't be wasted on the heating coils. Worse was the need for rest. They all lay down at last, except Frank Nelson, who moved around, clipping the nuclear battery into one archer for a minute, to freshen the air, and then into another, it was the only trick or gimmick that they found. After a while, Lester made the rounds while Nelson rested. They got a few more miles by swapping batteries in quick succession, but the accumulating carbon dioxide in the air they breathed made them sleepier. They had to sit down, then lie down. Frank figured that they had come something over a quarter of the 800 miles. This was about the end of Frank Nelson, would-be planet strapper from Jarviston, Minnesota. Well, his coffin would be a common one, an Archer Five. Somehow he thought of a line from Kipling. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. He tried to clip the nuclear battery back into Helen's armor again. She might make the remaining 500-something miles alone. 
He just barely managed to accomplish it. There was still a little juice from his chemical cell feeding his helmet phone. Now he thought he heard someone singing raucously, one of those improvised doggerel songs of spacemen and moonmen. Folklore, almost. If this goddamn dust just holds its crust, I'll get on to hell if my gear don't bust. Hey, Nelson gurgled thickly into his phone. Hey. Then it was as if he sort of sank. Hell was real, all right, because with needles in his eyes and all through his body, Nelson seemed to be goaded on by imps to crawl in infinite weariness through a hot steel pipe to face old Nick himself. Or was it somebody he met before? Maybe, he asked, because he got an answer from the grinning, freckled face bending over him as he lay armorless on a sort of pallet under the taunt-stelling roof of a moon-tent. "'Sure, Frankie, me, Gimp Hines, the itinerant trader and repairman of the lunar wilderness. What a switch. Didn't think you'd goof.' "'The bunch, especially two and two, couldn't contact you. So I was sort of looking, knowing about where you'd be. Just made it in time.' Les and the girl, and that ornery professor, or whatever, are right here, too, still knocked out with a devil-killer. You've been out twenty hours yourself. I'll fill you in on the news. Just shut up and drink up. Good earth whiskey. A hundred bucks just to shoot a fifth into orbit. Frank gulped and coughed. Thanks, Gimp. His voice was like pumice. Shut up, I said, Gimp ordered arrogantly. About me, first. When I got to Serene, I could have convinced them that I was worth a job. But I'm independent. I hocked my gear, bought some old parts, built myself a tractor and trailer, loaded it with water, oxygen, frozen vegetables, spare parts, cigarettes, pin-up pictures, liquor, and so forth, and came traveling. I didn't forget tools. You'd be astonished by what you can sell and fix, and for what prices, out in the isolated areas, or what you can bring back. I even got a couple of emeralds, as big as pigeon eggs. I'm getting myself a reputation besides. What difference does just one good leg make, at only one-sixth earth grav? You'd still hop along, even when you don't ride. And everywhere I go, I leave the left boot print behind in the dust, like a record that could last a thousand ages. I'm getting to be left foot, the legend." Nelson cleared his throat, found his voice. "'Cocky, aren't you, pal?' he chuckled. So another thing was happening in reverse from what most people had expected. Gimp Hines was finding a new, surer self off the earth. "'It's all right, Gimp,' Nelson added. "'I figured that I saw your tracks and your tractor tread marks up in the hills just before I decided to break away from Rodin.' Then he was telling the whole story." Yes, I was there, Gimp said at the end. I missed you on the first pass, prospected for a couple of earth days, found a small copper deposit. High ground gave me a good position to receive short-wave messages. Thought I heard your voices a couple times, so I doubled back and located what is left of Rodin's camp and yours and Les's initialed blast-off drums, which I've brought along in my trailer. Lucky, a trader needs an atom-powered tractor that can move at night. I followed your tracks, though going through rough country, 
You were screened from my radio calls until I was almost on you. Though on my first pass, when you were still in camp, I guess, I could have reached you by bouncing a beam off a mountaintop, had I known. Well, it doesn't matter now. I'm out of stock again and full of money. Got to head back to Serene. You were trying for the Tovey station, huh? What else could we do? I see what you mean, Frank. If you could have made it and missed getting shot by some trigger-happy guard, where a frontier isn't even supposed to exist, they probably would have held you for a while and then let you go. About the rest of the bunch, Frank, Nelson prompted. The Kuzaks got to the belt okay, though they had to fight off some rough and humorous characters. Story reached his Mars. Charlie Reynolds and Two and Two got to Venus and hooked up with the exploring expedition. Tiflin, who knows? Ramos. Ah, a real disappointing case, Frank. Darn wild idiot, who ought to be probing the farther reaches of the solar system, got himself a job in a chemical plant in Serene. A synthesizing retort exploded. He was burned pretty bad, just out of the hospital when I last left. It was on account of a woman that he was on the moon at all. Eileen, the Queen of Serene, Gimp? Is that so, too? Yep, sort of. Our Eileen. Back in Jarviston, Ramos found out that she was there. She's a good kid. Even admits that she hasn't got much competition. On a mostly yet masculine world. Well, I guess we start rolling, huh? I didn't want to jolt any of you poor sick people, so I camped. Let's get you all into archers, for which I have a few spare parts left. Then, after we roll up the sealed air-conditioned tent of a familiar material, we can be on our way. Just let's watch Rodan, that's all, Frank Nelson warned. Sure, we'll keep him good and dopey with tranquilizers. They aroused Dave Lester and Helen Rodan, helped them armor up, explained briefly what the situation was, stuffed Xavier Rodan into his archer, and climbed with him into the sealable cab of the tractor. Here they could all remove their helmets. After several hours of bumping over rugged country, with the tractor's headlights blazing through the star-topped blackness, they reached a solid trail over a mare. They could zip along, almost, like on a highway. There were other rough stretches, but most of the well-selected route was smooth. Half the time Nelson drove while Gimp rested or slept. They ate spaceman's gruel, heated on a little electric stove and after a certain number of hours they climbed over the side of the moon and made their own sunrise. After that, the going seemed easier. Gimp and Frank were just about talked out by then. Helen Rodan looked after her slumbering father. Otherwise, she and Lester seemed wrapped up in each other. Frank hardly listened to the few words they exchanged. They kept peering eagerly and worriedly along the trail, that wound past fantastic scenery. Nelson was eager and tense himself. Serene, he was thinking with gratitude. Back to some civilization, back to freedom, if there wasn't too much trouble on account of all that had happened. Speeding along, they passed the first scattered domes, a hydroponic garden, an isolated sun power plant. It was another hour before they reached the checking gate of one of the main airlocks. Frank Nelson didn't try any tricks before the white-armored International Guards. "'There have been some difficulties,' he said. "'I think you'll want all of our names.' 
I am Helen Rodan, Helen interrupted. My father, Xavier Rodan, here, is sick. He needs a hospital. I will stay with him. These are our friends. They brought us all the way from the far side. Within the broad airlock compartment, Lester also got down from the tractor. I'll stay, too, he said. Go ahead, Frank. You and Gimp have had enough. A moment, gruffed one of the guards, with a slight accent. We shall say who shall do what, passing this lock. Difficulties? Very well. Names and space fitness cards, please, from everybody. And where you will be staying here in Serene. Gimp and Frank got permission to pass the lock after about fifteen minutes. Without Helen and Les agreeing to stay, it might have been tougher. They spoke their thanks. For the time being, Frank was free to breathe open air under big stellene domes. But he didn't know in what web of questioning and accusations he might soon be entangled. Looking back to his first action against Rodin, with a sharpened trowel that had pierced the wall of a stellene dome, eventually leading up to Dutch's death, and very nearly precipitating his own demise and that of his other companions, he wondered if it wouldn't be regarded as criminal. Now, he wasn't absolutely sure himself that it hadn't been criminal, or moon-mad. Yet, he didn't hate Xavier Rodin any less. The SOB might just get sent to a mental hospital at the worst, Gimp growled loyally. Well, come on, Frank. Let's forget it. Ditch our Archies at the hostel. Get a cultured steak, and look around to see what you've missed. So that was how Frank Nelson began to get acquainted with Serene. Fifteen thousand population, much of it habitually transient. A town of vast aspirations, careful discipline, little spotless cubicles for living quarters. Pay twenty dollars a day just for the air you breathe. Earth beer, twenty dollars a can, a dollar if synthesized locally. Hydroponic sunflowers, dahlias, poppies, tomatoes, cabbage, all grown enormous in this slight gravity. New chemical synthesis plants, above ground and far below. Metal refineries, shops making electronic and nuclear devices, and articles of fabric, glass, rubber, plastic, magnesium. A town of supply warehouses and tanks around a great spaceport, a town of a thousand unfinished enterprises, and as many paradoxes and inconveniences. No water in fountains, water in toilets only during part of an earth day, English, French, Spanish, German, Greek, and Arabic spoken, to mention a few of the languages. An astronomical observatory, a selenographic museum already open, though less than half completed, and, of course, it was against the law not to work for more than seventy-two consecutive hours. And over the whole setup there seemed to hang the question, can man really live in space, or does his invasion of it signal his final downfall? At a certain point, Nelson gave up trying to figure out all of the aspects of Serene. Of course he and Gimp had one inevitable goal. There was a short walk, Gimp hopping along lightly. Then there was an elevator ride downward, for a place aggressively named the first stop was nestled cozily in the lava rock underlying the dust of Mare Serentitis. It had an arched interior, bar, stage, blaring jukebox, tables, and a shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder press of tough men, held in curious orderliness, in part, 
by the rigid caution needed in their dangerous and artificial existences, in part by the presence of police, and in part, perhaps, by a kind of stored-up awe and tenderness for girls, all girls, who had been out of their lives for too long. In a way, it was a crude, tawdry joint, but it was not the place that Frank and Gimp, or even many of the others, had come to see. Eileen Sands was there, dancing, crazy, swoopy stuff, possible at lunar gravity, as Frank and Gimp entered. Her costume was no feminine fluff. Cheesecake, of which she presumably didn't have much, was not on display either. Dungarees still? No, not quite. Slender black trousers, like some girls use for ballet practice, instead. Maybe she wasn't terribly good or sufficiently drilled yet in her routines, but she had a pert, appealing face, a quick smile. Her hair was brushed close to her head. She was a cute, utterly bold pixie to remember smiling at you, just you, like a spirit of luck and love, far out in the thick silence. Her caper ended. She was puffing and laughing and bowing, and maybe sweating some besides. The clapping was thunderous. She came out again and sang Firestreak in a haunting, husky voice. Meanwhile, a barman touched Frank and Gipp's shoulders. Hines and Nelson, she has spotted you two. She wants to see you in her quarters. Hi, lads, she laughed. Beer for old times. You look like hell, Frank. Brief me on the missing chapter. You had everybody scared. Ah, uh, you first, your majesty, Nelson chuckled in return. She wrinkled her nose at him. Well, I got here. There was a need. Somebody decided that I was the best available talent. This is my first step. Maybe I'll have my own spot, bigger and better, or get back to my own regular self, working out there with the men. Maybe it was bad taste, but Nelson felt like teasing. Ever hear of a person named Miguel Ramos? That didn't bother her, she shrugged. Still around, though I hope not for long, the buffoon. Who could ever put up with a show-off small boy like that for more than ten minutes? Besides, he's wasting himself. Why should he pick me for a bad influence? Now, your chapter, Frank. He told her the story briefly. At last, she said, Frank, you must be spiritually all jammed up. Gimp is set, I know. In a few minutes more, Eileen introduced him to a girl. Jenny Harper had large, dark eyes and a funny, achy sort of voice. Gimp disappeared discreetly with his date. Frank and Jenny sat at a table in a private booth high up in the arches of the first stop and watched Eileen do another number. Jenny explained herself. I'm another one. I've got to go where the heroes go. That's me, Frankie, is it? So I'm here. She had a perfume. While he was Rodin's prisoner for two and a half months, there were special things that had driven him almost wild. Now he made hints inevitably. I don't need Eileen to tell me you're a good guy, Frank, she said with a small, warm smile. We're just entertainers. They wouldn't let us be anything else here. It hardly mattered what else they said. Maybe it was fifteen hours later that Frank Nelson found himself walking along a stellene-covered causeway, looking for left-foot Gimp Hines. He had memories of a tiny room, very neat and compact, with even a single huge rose in a vase on the bed table. But the time 
had a fierce velvet softness that tried to draw him to it forevermore. It was like the grip of a home and the lost earth and the fear that he would chicken out and return. He found Gimp, who seemed worried. You might get stuck here on count of Rodan, he said. Even I might. We'd better go see. Nelson had bitter, vengeful thoughts of Rodan being set at liberty, with himself the culprit. The official at the police building was an American, a gruff one, but human. "'I got the dope from the girl, Nelson,' he said, "'and from Lester. "'You're lucky. Rodan confessed to a murder, another employee, "'just before he hired you. "'Apparently, just before he made his discovery. "'He was afraid that the kid would try to horn in. "'Oh, he's not insane, not enough to escape punishment, anyhow. "'Here the official means of execution is simple exposure to the vacuum.' Now, if you want to leave Serene, you'd better do so soon, before somebody decides to subpoena you as a witness. Frank felt a humbled wonder. Was Rodin really accountable, or was it the moon and space, working on people's emotions? Leaving the building, Frank and Gip found Dave Lester and Helen Rodin entering. They talked for a moment. Then Lester said, Helen's had lots of trouble, and we're in love. "'What do we do, guys?' "'Don't know. Get married,' Nelson answered, shrugging. "'It must happen here, too. Oh, I get it. Living costs off the earth are high. Well, I've got what Helen's father paid me. Of course I have to replace the missing parts of my equipment, but I'll loan you five hundred. Wish it could be more.' "'Shucks, I can do better,' Gimp joined in. "'Pay us some time, when you see us.' "'I don't know,' Lester protested worriedly, like an honest man.' but Gimp and Frank were already shelling out bills, like vagabonds who happened to be flush. Poor simpletons, Gimp wailed facetiously afterwards, when they had moved out of earshot. Even here it happens, but that's worse, and if her daddy had stayed human, she might almost have been an heiress. Well, come on, Frank. I've got my space gear out of hock and my tractor sold. An old buddy of ours is waiting for us at a repair and outfitting shop near the spaceport. I hope we didn't jump the gun, assuming you want to get out in the open again. You didn't, Nelson answered. You sure you don't want to look at Rodin's site, see if we can find any more Martian stuff? Gimp looked regretful for a second. Uh, it's jinxed, he said. Ramos, scarred, somewhat along the neck and left cheek, and a bit stiff of shoulder, was rueful but very eager. Frank's gutted gear was out of the blast-off drum and spread around the shop. Most of it was already fixed. Ramos had been helping. "'Well, Frankie, here's one loose goose who's really glad to be leaving Luna,' he said. "'Are the asteroids all right with you, for a start?' "'They are,' Nelson told him. "'Passing close to Mars, which is lined up orbitally along our route,' Gimp put in. "'Did you beam two and two and Charlie on Venus?' Ah, uh, they're just kind of bored, Ramos said. I even got Story at the Martian survey station. But he's going out into those lousy thickets again. Old Paul and Jarviston sounds the same. Can't get him right now. North America is turned away. I couldn't pinpoint the Kuziks in the belt, but that's not unusual. I'll finance a load of trade stuff for them, Gimp chuckled. We ought to be able to move out in about five hours, huh? Should... Ramos agreed. Weapons? We might need them this trip, and everything else is about ready. 
So we'll get a good meal and then buy our load, Frank enthused. He felt the texture of his deflated bub. The hard lines of deep space equipment quickened his pulses. He forgot the call of Earth. He felt as free and easy as a hobo with cosmic dust in his hair. Blast off from Serene's port, even with three heavily loaded trader rockets, was comparatively easy and inexpensive. Out in orbit, three reunited bunch members inflated and rigged their bubs. For Nelson, it seemed an old, splendid feeling. They lashed the supplies from the trader rockets into great bundles that they could tow. Before the rockets began to descend, the trio of beautiful, fragile rings pushed by ions streaming from their centers started to accelerate. End of Chapter 4, Part 2